Hello, and welcome to the Future of Coding. This is Steve Kraus. So these past two weeks were jam-packed with stuff. I was very productive, and I had a lot of fun. Starting with, I have been hearing a lot from listeners like you guys. Um, it's been actually pretty crazy. I think on starting on Monday of last week, every single weekday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, I got an, I got an email from one of you that uh, from, from someone I've never even heard some of you I've never even heard of um, which was amazing um, so yeah like when I got the email on Monday I was like oh my god this was the coolest <laughs> and then that that same reaction happened every single day um, the only the only difference is that by by Friday I came to expect it I think it was like 3 p.m. on Friday I was like where's my where's my email but then but then I got one so uh, that was really exciting so so keep it up guys uh, please keep sending me emails. Uh, even just saying that, that you listen to the podcast and you like what I'm up to means that so much to me to know that, that people are out there listening and find value in what I'm producing. So please uh, let me know. Uh, I really appreciate it. Um, and then if you are also working in this space, please sh uh, shoot me links to, to stuff that you're creating. I would love to check it out and, and get to review it on my website and maybe even talk about um, what I, what I get from you on this podcast. Um, I will just want to caveat, caveat that um, I, am, I am, as you can tell, busy. I have a lot, of, a lot of products to review, a lot of things to build, a lot of things to think about, a lot of people to talk to. So um, I, I can't promise when I'll get to your email. I, I can promise that within a day or so, I should, I should reply and say, like, I've gotten your email. Like, thanks so much for emailing. I will... I will uh, get it. I will, like, you know, give give you a link. I'll put them into the queue and get to them uh, at some point, um, which I know isn't that satisfying, um, but I will get to it eventually. And I am human, so if you follow up again or again, you know, the more you follow up, the more, the easier you make it for me to follow uh, follow up. The, the the faster you'll get a, a full response from me. So in summary, please keep emailing. Um, so I started. So last. The last two weeks, um, before not not these past two weeks, the ones before, as you heard about in the last research recap, was a deep dive into Cycle.js and functional reactive programming, which was really fun. And I continued that. Well, I finished that up last week. Um, well, actually, two weeks ago. So the, at the beginning of this this last two week cycle, I finished up my Cycle.js deep dive, which in this case was finishing up the, the Cycle.js Flappy Bird, which took me a long, long time. Um, yeah, I, I ended up finishing it on Webpack bin, um, which I love. Uh, I actually found, um, yesterday while Googling around that, uh, there's an alternative to Webpack bin that I found, like, it's like a code sandbox thing as well. Those projects are great. And I, I really hope that those continue, um, uh, that obviously there is the downside where I can't use the Cycle.js dev tools and other things like that. But apparently even Andre Stoltz uses Webpack bin, uh, and he's a creator of Cycle.js. Uh, so um, let's see, what, what else? Um, I, I ended up using like a new part of the Ununify API, which is really cool. Uh, they, they like refactored the way you're supposed to deal with uh, a dynamic collections of sub subcomponents. It actually took them 300 comments to come up with the new interface API for how to deal with this. Which is really amazing. It's it's part of what makes Cycle.js so amazing that Andre comes up with an initial idea that's okay, and then through collaboration with the, the open source community, he gets to 
things that are better and better and better and better. Um, yeah, so that was great. I really enjoyed it. Um, however, it did take a long time and it did hurt my brain, which are things to note. However, once the code was written, I was able, the mental model I had of it was really strong and I was able to change things with a surety that I knew what I was doing. Um, it was like the opposite of spaghetti code, which is the reason you program in CycleJS and you use FRP, or at least that's one of the main reasons. So then I wanted to continue this functional reactive programming trend and kind of dive deeper. So I started making a Flappy Bird in Elm, which was also really fun. It was much, much faster than in CycleJS. Probably uh, a significant portion of the reason why it was faster is because those frameworks are very, very similar, as I'm beginning to understand more and more, the more I use them both. Um, so because I just done it in the, sa the same app in CycleJS, it was much easier to, to build it in Elm. Like the, I knew what the model would look like. I just basically copied that over. Um, I, I knew what the general ways the model gets updated is like. And so it was really just a matter of converting my CycleJS code into Elm, which is a really useful exercise and it helped me to understand this question of how they're similar because when you look at them both it doesn't it doesn't it's not immediately apparent how they're similar um so let me actually talk about that for a second because that did confuse me for a while but now it seems kind of obvious so i guess one thing to put out there is that they're only similar when you use cycle.js in a similar way so CycleJS is a very low-level stream library. So you can use it in a lot of different Hakamami kind of ways. Um, if you go back and see the first version of Flappy Bird that I had um, you know, maybe like a month ago, you'll see that it, it was in this, I, I designed in this really, really crazy way. Um, like for example, the Y position of the bird, I made totally as a declarative function of stuff. Uh, like it was like, um, like I, I, I took the stream of space bars and I merged it with the stream of mouse clicks and whenever, and whenever you did a, a space bar or a mouse click, I turned that into another stream and then I like collapsed the streams. I, I, I had many streams of streams and things were very, very declarative, but they also really hurt my brain and they wouldn't have scaled uh, to allow me to do things like when the XY position is greater than a certain value, the game should be over, and then, uh, but when you press the restart button, the game should, should be restartable, you know. Um, it, basically, what I'm getting at is um, certain pieces of state depend on other pieces of state, and so really the only way to not hurt your brain is to have a singleton of state. And, and once you have a singleton of state in CycleJS, it, it, that moves it like an inch closer to the Elm architecture. And then what you might want to do is create uh, a notion of actions. Um, and an action is basically just a label, like a, a thing that happens uh, that updates your singleton event, a uh, singleton storage of data. So like a, a tick event, uh, whenever that happens, uh, I move the pipes a little bit, and I move the bird a little bit. A tick is like a, a like a, a, a tick of a clock. Like time move forward fo is moving forward a little bit. You could also think of it as like a the next tick of a render cycle. Um, and then like a jump event is like either a space 
space key or a mouse click, um, a, a new pipe event. Uh, that that's a, uh, could also be a um, an action. So so you can in my original version or uh, of the cycle jazz flappy bird, I didn't have actions. I kind of did it in a hackamamey kind of way, but over time I, I refactored things into proper actions and my code became much more readable. Um, I also separated things out into like view and, and my model and my update. You know, I like slowly came up with the architecture that Elm already has by default. Um, and, I, and I'm sure you could do the same in Elm. You could like slowly intuit the architecture over time. And I think that's actually how the Elm architecture was invented. They, they created this language Elm and they iterated through a bunch of different architectures. I think it used to be a lot more functional, functionally reactive and much more stream-based than it is now. Um, but I think this is how it, it came to what it is now. It, it was much more stream-based and they realized that there's this common set of use cases that people use. And if you just build the architecture to work for that use case with all the defaults built in with like the model and the update and the actions all kind of um, built in, then it just like makes things really much easier for people. So that, that's my current understanding of, of how it works. And, and I guess potentially if CycleJS wanted to make it, make things clearer for their users, uh, they could probably also have, uh, they could explain the CycleJS architecture default, kind of like Elm has the Elm default architecture. Elm is a little bit more prescriptive about how to use Elm than CycleJS is at the moment. But that's, I think, partially just because Andre likes um, to kind of be less opinionated and let the user, and, let, let, and then watch where users take things and, and react from there. Uh, so yeah, those two were, were really, really interesting uh, experiments. I learned a lot about functional reactive programming and I had a blast getting to code. Um, I guess one final note that I've made probably a few times already is that both these take so, so long to, to program. Um, and if you compare this to making the same game in Woof.js, it takes much, much, much less time. Um, and what I'm, I guess what I'm getting at is th this begs the question, uh, is functional reactive programming a good paradigm if it's so much less intuitive and so much harder than sequential programming like Scratch or Woof to make things happen? And that's, that's a really good question. It's an, a good open question. And I think in order to answer it, you have to think about um, what specifically about functional reactive programming is hard and um, can we make it better? And, and, the, and, the, and you, you could say that same questions about um, imperative programming. What about it is bad and can we make those things better too? The reason uh, I'm more thinking about the first question, not the second question, is that functional reactive programming has a lot of amazing benefits. Uh, I guess they're similar to the benefits that functional programming has. Your code is just more understandable. It's clearer, it's more declarative. Um, uh, there's a great picture that I have uh, that explains what declarative programming is, uh, but I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but then the problems with declarative programming are also numerous. And so uh, thinking about how to address those problems is, is a good line of inquiry. And so where this usually leads me to is, um, well, can we build a better... So uh, one of the things that's really hard is um, typing it. 
just like knowing what you could type, like what actions are acceptable. But what's great about functional programming is that we have strong types, so it's like very clear if you give the computer some information, it could help you figure out what other things are even possible with it, with the uh, values and types it's been given. And so that's where Luna and Lambda and Unison and Isomorph kind of come in. They, they these are projectional editors for functional programming. I think VisiCalc would fit in this category as well. So, so those are really cool in my experience while using those. It has been a little bit annoying and frustrating. I will say though that Isomorph uh, has, was actually uh, very pleasant to use. So, so that was good. Um, but, uh, and, and also, um, if you listen to that last week's podcast with Christopher Anand, he, um, he, has, he also has a projectional editor, but uh, for, for Elm programming for students. So um, apparently that makes things a lot easier for kids. So um, that, yeah, that's that. And then like on the other, on the second question, which is, can we make uh, scratch programming or WolfJS programming, the sequential programming better? Um, that's harder. Uh, sequential programming inherently is messy. Like the computer just doesn't know what's supposed to happen because you don't tell it what's supposed to happen. You're just telling it what to do imperatively. So there's, there's less semantic meaning. It's more, it's lower level. So it's harder to, because uh, the thing that's bad about sequential programming is that your code can get really messy, but refactoring it's basically impossible because the computer doesn't know, the computer helping you refactor it is impossible because the computer doesn't really know what's going on. So, so I think it's much, it's much more tractable to make functional programming uh, more intuitive and easy than it is to make sequential programming more, uh, more abstract, more declarative, better, more refactorable, more understandable, more maintainable. So then things took a bit of a turn for the interesting. So I had a surprisingly amazing phone call with Andreas at curious underscore reader from Twitter, um, who tweeted at me after my conversation with Paul Chisano from Unison, because he, he's a longtime fan of Paul's. Uh, he had some interesting links that he shared on Twitter. So I, we reached out over email and we set up time to talk. And I was kind of thinking, uh, to, you know, I wasn't expecting very much because he was just a random stranger from the internet. But wow, he was a wealth of knowledge. Uh, it seems like he knows more about this space than I do. He had notes about Alan Kay and all these same people and more. And it was really wonderful talking to him. And um, to be honest, I've only looked through one of the th links he sent me so far, and that was a link to, and, and this one link, as you'll, as you'll hear, that kind of changed everything. So this was a very productive phone call, considering that I haven't even looked through a single other link from, the, from Andreas yet. Uh, so he sent me to the interview on the Y Combinator podcast with Juan Bennett, who some of you may know of as a creator of the IPFS, the Interplanetary File System, and Filecoin, which uh, works, is built on top of that. Uh, and so what's relevant to this conversation about that um, isn't anything to do with the block stack, which was fascinating, and you should go listen to that conversation because, oh my god, that's really cool. There's a lot about the block stack, which is bubbly and scammy and weird, especially right now. But Juan Bennett is really cool and has some amazing thoughts here. So, but what's relevant about that here is more the way he talks about and thinks about solving problems. So uh, three years ago, a mutual friend of mine and Juan sent me, uh, like forwarded me an email of his 
uh, basically him rambling his like master plan. What didn't really even feel like a master plan. It was more just like, here are the problems that I see in the world. Here is how I want to go about solving them. And I, I read it at the time. I thought it was like mildly interesting, but I mostly just skimmed it. And then a few months later, I was trying to start, start this problem that was like a, a, a graph of all the knowledge in the world. And I found this project called Athena that he had started uh, a few years before. And um, so I reached out and, and asked him if he, if he would want to talk uh, and help me because I, I wanted to do a similar project. And so he made time for me and I asked him all these questions and he was very helpful, uh, giving me good advice about Athena. But I didn't really ask any questions about what he was working on. At the time, he had stopped working on Athena uh, and was working on the interplanetary file system. And I just thought it was wacky and irrelevant to me. So I didn't ask any questions. And then fast forward three years, I listened to this podcast and holy crap, this, this kid has accomplished so much in, in the past three years. And so, and so much of his dreams have become reality. And so many things that he, he didn't even think were, would be possible two or three years ago when he wrote this have become like not only not only reality but like he's blown past certain goals uh like for example in his master plan he talks about the importance of creating the next bell labs to spur on uh like the next wave of innovation and research and he's still talking about creating the next bell labs and how that was his goal and how he's doing it with with his protocol labs company now uh, and now, uh, given that he's raised hundreds of millions of dollars for a Filecoin, he has the capital to actually do it and, and hire a full team of, of really smart people to innovate and, and create the next breakthrough innovations for the world. Uh, and it was just there was something about the way he analyzes the problems that exist in the world and, and thinks uh, he, he, he considers problems that most of us don't even consider are problems because we just accept them as reality, the way things are. Uh, for example, he, he says, you know, really, I think one of the biggest problems that we have to solve is the backwards propagation of value problem. And I was like, what is he talking about? And it turns out what he's talking about is, um, is, is like rewarding people for the work they do. That's the problem we want to solve. Because let's say you had a bunch of agents and they all do random stuff and you want to reward the ones that do stuff well so they can do more stuff. Uh, and so capitalism is a uh, approximation of the system. But it's a very bad approximation because uh, two things. One, a, a people can, can amass lots and lots of capital without doing good things for the world. Um, and then two, um, people can do all sorts of good things for the world and not get any capital backwards pop- propagated towards them. And there, there are all sorts of other problems. But if we just leave it at those two, those are some real problems. And most people just assume that, you know, well, they're really unsolvable. But... Um, he's ambitious enough to like recognize that that's a problem and say, even though I don't have the solution, here are a few ideas how we might solve the problem. Um, and like, he's trying to do it. Like even in the next few years, he's like using the blockchain and, and using voting um, and using like maybe systems like open collective. He, he's like tackling big, big hairy problems like that. And so this kind of like sent me for a loop on Friday. Um, this wasn't this past Friday. It was the Friday before sent me for a total loop and I realized that I need to be much more articulate about why the problem that I want to solve is important, um, specifically what I want to achieve, and then also talk about my strategy about how I want to achieve it. 
basically, I need to create an Elon Musk style master plan. Uh, and, and I think really Elon Musk is like the most comparable person I could think of to compare Juan Bennett to, because who else do you know that thinks of massive problems that the world faces, conceives of far ranging solutions to these problems that everyone thinks is impossible and not going to happen. And like he's out of his mind. And then just like a short number of years later, like has achieved significant portions of his plan. Like who does that? Elon Musk. I guess maybe Jeff Bezos says it a little bit. Um, I think he might be a little more secretive about his plans. Um, but boy, boy, it, that's, that's cool and powerful. And I, I, I want to rise to that level of, of uh, awesomeness. So I, I spent a bunch of time that Saturday, like the next day after last Friday. Um, so not this past Saturday, the one before. I spent like an hour and a half just like brain dumping my master plan in the slash about page of my website. So futureofcoding.org slash about is where my master plan currently lives. I don't know if that's the right place for it, but that's where it is now. Um, but one of the, the biggest things I realized on Saturday is that for whatever reason, I implicitly assumed that things like master planning and strategizing, thinking about how I'm spending my time, if I'm spending it well, I kind of assumed that that would just happen like somewhere uh, I wasn't allocating time for it uh, specifically. Like, like, I do have time to reflect on, the, on what I did the past two weeks. That's the time that I'm using right now to record this, to like plan and record this very research recap episode. And, and these episodes are great, and I want to keep doing this. But I need to allocate uh, like more time thinking about what I'm trying to accomplish, articulating what I'm trying to accomplish, strategizing about accomplishing it, getting feedback on my meta plan, on my master plan, getting feedback on how I'm going about things, whether or not my goal is a good goal, things like that. Um, I, like, I haven't, I haven't like, kind of thought in that st- strategic way before uh, I was inspired by Juan Bennett, but now I am. So I, I was planning to continue working on uh, like diving deeper into functional reactive programming last week. And I did for a day or two, um, but then I just I couldn't resist master planning and, and strategizing and, and thinking about things strategically. And so that's what I spent a majority of the rest of last week doing. And I, continue, and I expect that con- to, master planning to continue for at least the next few days, maybe even the next week or two, um, in fits and starts. There, there are other things I want to do, um, other activities I want to do, like other things I want to research and think about. Um, but I really want to continue to articulate my master plan and then send it out to a bunch of my friends and mentors for advice to get feedback on how I'm approaching things and, uh, and then kind of incorporate that feedback into the plan and then feel confident in attacking the plan for a few months, head down, and then, um, and then maybe revisit the plan a few months afterwards to see how things are going. So let me walk you through the master plan as it sits right now. So firstly, computing is power uh, for two reasons. And these are distinct. Number one, as software eats the world, those who can manipulate software basically become magicians. The fact that I can create an app that actually does things in the world is magical. Maybe 30 or 40 years ago when things weren't in, in software, when things existed on paper or in people's heads, coding was cool, but it wasn't that cool. Now, that, that, and, and as time goes on, as things become more and more software-based, um, 
people who can control software have a lot of power. And secondly, and really close to my heart, learning to code itself teaches you how to better think, how to think more clearly, how to think more precisely in a more organized way. That's a really important thing for me, and that's a, a big part of why I want to create this tool, to teach people how to think. It's kind of like an Easter egg that's kind of, I'm sneaking in there. People are going to use this tool so, because, so they can do things with it. Um, but through doing things and learning this tool, they're going to learn how to think better, and it will be magical. The problem is that the current usability of our tools that kids use to, to program in are very poor. Uh, there, there are a few that, that aren't. You know, there are a few notable ex- exceptions like Scratch and, and Woof and other tools that, are, that have been designed with usability in mind. But on the, on the whole, the usability of our tools is very, very poor, and it takes hundreds of hours of grueling practice to learn how to code. It's like everyone I, I talk to who hears that I teach kids to code asks me to teach them to code. Because um, it, it's something that they want to know how to do at, at some level, or at least they know that they should want to know how to do it, but they also know that it, it's, it's really hard and takes a long time. But then, even, even if you spend the time, like I have, if you spend the decades it takes to learn how to code, it's still really hard. Like, it's, it's still harder for me to code than it should be by, like, an order of magnitude. It should be, like, two or three or four or ten times uh, easier than it is for me to code, even after spending thousands of hours programming. And Yeah, and I really think we can do better. I, I think Brett Victor's talk, The Future of Programming, does a really great job of, of kind of explaining how programming used to be in binary, and then someone had the idea of... of going up a level of abstraction to assembly and then a level of abstraction up to C and then and, and the Python or, and then to Haskell. You know, we keep jumping level of abstractions with languages, but it feels as if we've kind of stopped, at least to most people. You know, in my world, it feels like we're, if you listen to this podcast, you hear about all the people who are innovating and trying to move to the next level of abstraction. But to most programmers and to most people, it feels like we've stopped. And, and we aren't innovating and we aren't trying to, to move forward. And, that, and that's what this po- podcast is about, moving forward. As you, as you may remember from the first episode of this podcast. Um, the, the main thesis is that we could do better. So um, I started working by myself, uh, but then uh, after a few years of working alone, I decided to start this podcast and, and to think out loud like my idol, Sam Harris. Uh, I don't know if, if any of you know who Sam Harris is, but I would recommend checking out his podcast. Um, he describes himself as, as thinking out loud, and, and so that's what I'm trying to do here. Um, all right, great. So that, that brings me to my goal. My goal is the same goal as, you know, like Alan Kay and Seymour Papert and Chris Granger at Eve, make computing accessible to everyone, um, but also in a way that, that, that makes them better thinkers. Um, so there, there are two parts to this goal. The f- one part is education. Um, so like even, if, uh, even when we have tools that are usable and, and, and uh, kids, can use, kids and people can use them intuitively to build things, they still need to go through, they still need to learn the tools. And that's non-trivial. And that's um, my first company, The Coding Space. That's what that company is about. Uh, so we have curriculum and, and a few tools that we've built, but we also use uh, Scratch from MIT. And so and we have a teaching methodology, we have curriculum. And so we built these things to teach kids how to, how to think computationally and build things with software. So, so learning to think computationally is still something that like, needs to be done, and that's kind of the first thing that I worked on in this space. However, 
um, kids are limited by the tools that are usable. So Scratch is usable and Woof is usable, but kids want to build more complicated things. They want to build like complicated apps that, that talk to different web services. And there are no usable tools, at least that I know of, uh, for kids to do those things. Every time I've tried, kids have gotten really frustrated and stuck uh, trying to do that, uh, trying to do complicated things. Um, and another way to think about this problem is when people ask me how to learn to code, I say, well, you know, I've spent years making what I think is a very intuitive curriculum to learn to code that's project-based where you can learn while making things, but the things you have to be making are games and animations that, are, that you know, seem childish. Like, I know you want to make an app to go change the world, but first spend uh, like 100 hours building childish games, and then you'll have like kind of the, the right computational ba- uh, building blocks in your brain to learn more advanced coding. So that, that's what I have to tell people now. Um, how wonderful and magical would it be if I could just give them a tool that's as intuitive as Scratch or WoofJS, but as powerful as any other general purpose programming language like Python or Ruby or, or JavaScript or React or any, any, any of those things. Like how amazing would that be if people didn't have to learn to code? They, they, if they want to build something, they just build it in a tool. This is, I guess, similar to um, spreadsheets. If someone wants to analyze some data, sure, they, they kind of have to learn how to, how to use spreadsheets, but spreadsheets are pretty straightforward. It's like you know a dozen hours or so. And all of a sudden, or, or maybe even less, and all of a sudden, you can really analyze some data. You don't need to learn anything more than, than that. Uh, and so that, that's the world that I'm, that I'm trying to create here. Really democratize computing and make it uh, accessible for, to everyone. So to summarize, the goal of this project, the Future of Coding Project, is to create a tool with the power of a general purpose programming language with the usability qualities of a standard end user application. So general purpose programming language, that's like Python, or Ruby or JavaScript, and, and with the usability qualities, that's like the uh, user friendliness of a tool like Facebook or, or a spreadsheet application. You know, obviously Facebook is easier to use than a spreadsheet, but um, directionally you understand what, I, what I'm getting at. Um, significantly easier to use than, than the tools we have now for, for programming. Um, I think it's also interesting to note what's missing from that, that goal. The goal is not to create a company, the goal is not to make money, um, the goal is to create a tool. And, and also, the goal is not to um, just create an interesting podcast where I have a lot of listeners. Like th- this podcast is not the goal. This podcast is the means. Another thing you may note is that the goal of this project is for a tool to be created. But I don't necessarily have to create this tool. If, if one of you who are listening to this podcast are inspired or influenced or like, informed by what I'm saying, and you go off and create the tool that like, changes the world, that, that kind of d- describes the problem, uh, that solves the problem that I'm solving, sorry, solves the problem I'm describing, that is amazing, and I'd be so happy, and I'd I'd give you a high five, uh, metaphorically maybe, if you're far away, Um, and I I have other ambitious problems that I'm trying to solve out there, and I'm just going to move on to the next one, and that will be amazing. Uh, I'm not trying to, like, make, get get rich here, so, like, why should I care if I I create this or someone else does? Um, uh, The goal is to create this tool, and if no one beats me to it, I'm going to do it, and and if someone beats me to it, great. I, I have uh, a few other projects, like five or six, that, are, that I, I will start writing the master plans for those as soon as this problem is solved. So, so if you can solve this problem, more power to you. Uh, then I can go and work on, on my next exciting projects. Um, so, and maybe start a, a podcast for, for those as well. Um, alrighty. So then I spend a lot of time in this, in this about page. It's a little disorganized right now. I spend a lot of time thinking about what I know, what I don't know. Um, I think one of the biggest things that 
master planning helped me realize is that I'm building a tool. And so at the end of the day, we know some of what a tool looks like. A tool is a code that is on github.com. It has an engaged developer community. It's not just me. It's a whole bunch of people. We're talking on issues. We're debating things. Maybe we have a Gitter where like, we're talking, we're, we're teaching new developers how to use it. It also has an engaged user community. People using the product, the analytics are looking good. So uh, in a lot of ways, it looks like kind of like how the Wolf.js projects looks right now. Uh, engaged developer community, engaged user community, good growth on both of those. Um, and then at, at some point, kind of like Wolf, it, bec it becomes apparent that I should kind of pass it off to the next person potentially because a lot of the interesting development that's been done uh, or like the, the, the truly innovative stuff has been done. And at this point, it's, it's more about maintaining and growing, um, which maybe I'd be interested in doing for some amount of time. But I think soon after it gets started, I'd want to have someone else take it over and, uh, and then I can move on to some of these other big problems that I uh, was just bragging on that I have, uh, these other really ambitious projects that I've been working on or that, that I've been marinating on in my head that I, that I want to solve as well. Um, maybe I will talk about some of those ideas in a, in a different podcast, but this one is going to be long enough as it is. So I will spare you those details right now. Uh, okay. So, uh, if we know that my goal is to build a prototype, then the most useful thing I can do is actually building prototypes, but only when the, the prototype I'm building is a worthwhile thing to build. So at the end of the day, the only thing that will move me closer to my goal is working on a prototype, but figuring out what prototype to work on, what to not work on, what order to, to do them in, strategizing about how to do the prototypes. Like these are all, like, it's not very clear how I should be dividing up my time between coding and talking to people and doing research and master planning. You know, there are a lot of different activities I can be doing and when I should do which ones. It's not always obvious. Um, I, I think I'm starting to get a better intuition for it than I had before. Uh, like for example, Brett Victor has hour, like hours, like maybe 20 hours of content that I should be reading at some point, but when should I be reading that content? Um, I think before I did this master planning, I thought I, I, w I wasn't sure if I should be doing that now or later. Um, and I think now I'm pretty sure that I should stick to um, prototyping, like th thinking more direct, directly about what prototypes I should be working on. And only when I'm really stuck and don't have like a clear prototype idea and I feel like I need more general knowledge should I, should I go and do general research like reading everything Brett Victor has ever written, kind of like how I did the same thing with Alan Kay. So that's where my head's at right now, um, as far as general research goes. And, and I'm laser focused on, the, on figuring out which prototypes are interesting things for me to work on, and also, more importantly, which problems are interesting for me to solve. Um, and uh, you, you might find uh, interesting, I, so, so some, um, you, you've heard me talk about stream sheets. Stream sheets was, the thing that really inspired me to learn more about reactive programming, Cycle.js um, and Elm over the past few weeks. However, while master planning, I was thinking that, you know, I'm not sure if Streamsheets is the right prototype for me to build. There are a lot of unknowns there. Um, even the people who work on Cycle.js day and night, who are real functional reactive programming experts, even they're not exactly sure like, uh, and I'm talking about Andre Stoltz and Nick Johnstone, like even, even they're not sure how 
a Cycle.js code IDE editor experience would look. Um, and it feels like that problem needs to marinate a little bit more before we know. And so in the meanwhile, I, I should probably work on a, on a problem with a smaller scope. And so that problem is like a functional reactive version of Woof or Scratch, which I may have mentioned on this podcast, but I've definitely mentioned in various places on my website. Uh, to summarize, uh, Scratch and Woof.js are micro worlds where kids can build games and animations easily, um, uh, very intuitively. And, it's, and they're, they're wonderful libraries. Uh, one problem with these libraries is that the code paradigm is very procedural, very sequential. You, you describe the steps the computer should take to do certain things, uh, one thing after another. And while this is very intuitive, the downside is that it's very error prone and it leads to spaghetti code more and more. Um, and it's kind of hard when you have a big project that's written sequentially to know what's affecting what, um, when bugs happen, how to debugging them is very, very, very hard, uh, things like that. And so, um, the, and the reason that functional reactive programming, or functional programming in, in general, but functional reactive programming is so great, is that it solves that specific problem. Your code is much more understandable, much more maintainable, much more elegant, uh, much easier to change things. It's, it, it's better to have your code written in a functional style than it is a procedural or sequential style. However, it is much harder to write code in a declarative functional style than it is in a procedural sequential style. So um, the question is, can we build a library that, makes, that allows children to make games animations like they could in Scratch and Woof, but in a declarative functional style? But, but, but here's the kicker. Can you make it as, in, as intuitive or as easy as programming in Scratch or Woof is? And that's an open question. There are a number of people who are doing really interesting research in this exact space. There's um, uh, Emmanuel's uh, Bootstrap program. They have the Pyret language, P-Y-R-E-T, the Pyret language. Um, that, that's like an interesting um, language that's in, in this world. Um, then, of course, if you remember from last week, Christopher Anand is doing interesting research in this space with a functionally reactive language, Elm which um, he created a library for that allows kids to make games and animations in Elm. And even, even better, he created an iPad app that allows kids to... Um, you, uh, an iPad app to edit their Elm programs. It's a projectional editor, so they can't make syntax errors. They just click on the text, and it allows them to do very simple things. It, it's, not a, it's not a complete experience. There are very few things you can edit. And that's actually my, my main complaint with the um, Elm framework that Professor Anand has, uh, there, there's like usually in the games that he has kids edit, there's like a section uh, of the code that the kids are allowed to edit so they can change the coefficient of gravity, but they can't really change like the engine of the game. There's like a section of code that's commented off that says like, don't edit anything under, underneath this comment. Uh, and, and, that, and that's really the interesting part of the code. And so for me, that's like a no-go. The kids have to be able to build the games from scratch. Um, so, no pun intended, sorry. The kids have to be able to get, build the games from zero code to as, as complicated as they want and be able to change any part of it and understand how it works. And so my question is, can I build a framework? Can anyone build a framework that's uh, 
both declarative and functional and intuitive? And that, that is a really interesting question. I think that might be the next prototype slash problem that I work on. Um, an open question is whether or not that's going to be a functional version of Woof or a functional version of Scratch. And so the difference there, obviously, is that Scratch is a graphical user interface tool where you drag and drop blocks, and Woof is a JavaScript framework. And so it's, it's really not obvious which direction I should go, because Scratch was actually created before Woof. Woof was created as a library that I made um, that was inspired by Scratch to be like the next step after Scratch for kids. Um, however, uh, if you really think about things, um, uh, Scratch uh, was created heavily inspired by Logo and by Smalltalk, both of which were textual languages. So, so, in so the textual languages came first, and then the graphical user interface. But then, but there really is no textual language that, that truly represents how Scratch works, except for Woof, which came after the graphical user interface. So, from some ways, you could say, you know, the graph the textual languages already exist to inspire this. They're Elm, they're Pirate, um, they're Haskell, they're they're CycleJS. Those languages already exist. The, the real innovation would be taking this and making a graphical user interface out of this, like Scratch did for uh, Logo and for uh, Smalltalk. But I think you could also say, you know, building graphical user interfaces are tricky and slow and hard. So I might be able to iterate faster on my language by building an actual textual language like WolfJS. So, so more, more of an equivalent. So it would probably look very similar to Elm or would look very similar to pirate. Uh, and so I think what I would think about is I'd make a few more games in Elm uh, and see and pirate and, and, and talk to Christopher Anand and Emmanuel from Bootstrap and Scott from Ucode, who's also teaching Elm to kids. I, I talk to those guys and see what their advice is on building this uh, declarative framework for kids to make games and animations. Uh, and then at the same time, I'll, th I'll think about how I would do this in Blockly to come at it from the other perspective, to make a declarative framework for Scratch, uh, but with blocks. Uh, so, so, so that's how I'm thinking about my next few stages, but I'm not jumping to anything yet. I want to really take my time and articulate what the Stream Sheets prototype is, what problems it solves, what, what my thinking is about it, all in one consolidated place that I'll continually update. And then I also want to do the same thing for this FR, for functional reactive Scratch, this functional reactive Woof, um, and then there's this new idea uh, that, was, uh, that I've, I've been noodling on, but uh, my conversation, my recent conversation with Andre Stoltz really helped bring to the forefront. So one thing Andre explained is that you really want to work on something that has a clear goal, like an interesting problem with a clear goal um, and that, that's scoped well so you can really finish it and polish it and get feedback on it and iterate on it. Because uh, when you work on a project that's too ambitious, it's hard to make progress in any direction. And so one subcomponent that will go into almost anything I build is an expression editor. So if you're thinking about it, like, what is an expression editor? Think about when you go into Excel or Google Spreadsheets and you type the equal sign. Anything you type after that equal sign is an expression. It's a, usually a mathematical expression, but sometimes they're complicated and they involve VLOOKUPs and other mathematical computations. So like to this day, when you want to go type an expression in an expression editor in Excel or Google Spreadsheets, you're typing characters. And sure, there's autocomplete, and they, they help you a little bit, but you really can make uh, an infinite amount of syntax errors. It's really hard to not shoot yourself in the foot there. I constantly am having trouble with that. 
there has been work here to make improvements. I think the apparatus editor, aprt.us, the editor there is pretty neat. It's, it's usable, but still you can make syntax errors. Um, I think um, Glenn, uh, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, but Glenn, G-L-E-N-C-H.com. Uh, he is doing some really interesting work here. Um, I actually just met him for the first time last week. I'm going to meet him again later today. So more on this front. Um, he created a, a thing called Legible Mathematics. You can read up his post. Um, and it's, it's very much in this, in this vein. It's trying to create a better expression editor. And, and he has some really, really interesting prototypes. So potentially I would continue down this line because what's, in, what's great about this expression editor project is that it's well-scoped, it's very straightforward, and anything I build would, would want this. And not only anything I build, but a lot of things other people will build would want a tool like this. I think uh, this is kind of similar to CodeMirror. Like, there are many places on the internet that want code-enabled text, uh, text editing with all sorts of add-ons and extensions and customizations. And it's amazing that um, CodeMirror exists and the Ace Editor exists. Like, otherwise, Wolf wouldn't really exist because, or at least the, the editor would be much sadder than it is today. Like, the editor in Wolf right now is so souped up. They're, like, we basically have every single add-on that exists turned on or has been used in some version of Wolf. Um, syntax highlighting everything. We, we use CodeMirror to the max. It's crazy. And, and the fact that I don't have to create that, I can just use it, and everyone on the web can just use that, oh, it's so great. And so... This expression editor, um, it might already exist, so I should definitely do my research, but, but this expression editor could be a really wonderful subcomponent to spend some time working on, and then I'll be able to use that in other projects. Um, the, the only reason why I wouldn't work on this first is because it's not an interesting problem. Like At the end of the day, you can just type out your expression. You can do the equal sign, and you can just write the expression uh, right there. Uh, we still do it for Google Spreadsheets. We do it for Excel, and Excel is usable. Like, like, you know, nobody has fun doing that, but it's usable. Uh, people, people do it. Um, so the only reason I think I would, I would do it is if I'm really stuck and don't have a prototype to work on, or the main reason I would do it is if I think for some reason that this is the limiting factor. Like if kids had this expression editor um, and it, and it like showed them what things were possible, uh, it would really make functional reactive programming more intuitive and, and, and easy for them. So I would, I would do it there. I guess relatedly, thinking about how customizable and how big this expression editor is, is relevant. For example, I love Google Blockly and it's great, but it's limited in, 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 in a lot of ways. Uh, and it's, it's very sequential and it's in the way things look and it's limited. It's great and it, it has problems. It, you know, I have a love-hate relationship with Google Blockly. I've spent uh, maybe like dozens of hours with it so far. Um, I, I started to really understand its internals. Uh, or, well, superficially understand its internals. And, and it gives me a lot of things for free, but there are problems with it. So maybe this expression editor would be the beginning of a, my own custom block library. So um, maybe I start with an expression editor, and then I say, you know what? I, I know how to make... I, I can turn this expression editor into a... Um, block-based editor for Elm, and you know I can turn this block-based editor for Elm into a generic block-based library uh, that people can use to make block-based languages. Like, if I could do that, if I could create a, a, a library for block-based languages that's kind of like Blockly, but more customizable, so that, so, because Blockly is really just 
Scratch. Like you, you can build block-based languages that are procedural, like Scratches. It's, it's very, very insp heavily inspired by Scratch, which is amazing, but it, it limits the level of innovation that people could have. So to make a more generic version of Blockly, oof, that would really spur on the innovation in this world. So um, I kind of talked myself into, into this project. But yet, I, I don't want to jump into it yet. I want to keep developing these ideas, keep, keep thinking things through, put all these ideas on paper, uh, talk about them more with other people, get feedback, and, uh, and really marinate in the problem, in the problems, as Andre Stolz said in, in our phone call this morning, marinate in the problem, marinate in the possible solutions, don't go to code quickly, really explore the problem space, get the, get the shape of the problem, get to know it, get to meet it, meet it get to talk to its parents, uh, live with it for a little while, and then, and only then, when the solution is, is so apparent, because you know the problem so well, and you know a, a series of solutions, you know why other solutions have failed, and only then the, uh, do you, do you uh, start working on, on different problems. Um, this is not to say that, that I, don't, I don't want to think too abstractly. Like, uh, part of how you get to know a problem is by proposing solutions and critiquing those solutions. Um, but I, I want to make sure that by proposing solutions and critiquing solutions, and even creating some little code prototypes, I'm not jumping head first. I can always zoom back out, look at the other solutions, look at the other problems, see where I am, um, be very deliberate and thoughtful about things. So that's uh, what master planning sounds like in its raw and unedited form. So inspired by all of this master planning, I've been doing a better job of organizing my thoughts around the specific problems and solutions and ideas that I've been thinking about and talking about with various people. And what I've come to realize through doing this is that in the past, while I was collecting a lot of good content, it wasn't well organized and I was inhibiting the thinking I was able to do around certain things and it was also inhibiting me being able to share my ideas with other people. I was kind of assuming that I would like kind of organize things at some later date but that's a lot of work. It'd be better if I just had a better structure. So part of what got me thinking in this way is um, I, I had a really great future programming meeting uh, last Monday with uh, a bunch of people who came, with new people, with some old people. It was really great. And we, we talked a lot about structured programming editors. So they use the word structured editors. I, I've often used the word projectional editor because the first future programming meeting I went to, someone used the word projectional editor. Uh, but, but structured editor, projectional editor, um, editing code via the AST, as opposed to editing character by character. Uh, other words, I, other noises I make when I talk about projectional editors are prune and lambda and luna. All of those things are projectional editors, so or structured editors. And so we were thinking and talking about structural editors, and I got an email from someone who wanted me to review their structured editor, and I just figured, you know what? It's time to write up my thoughts about structured editors. And so I did, and I talked about uh, how everyone, uh, how a lot of people are frustrated with structural editors. And so I, I have this George Carlin quote I begin it with, which is inside every cynical person, there is a disappointed idealist. And I think that quote is really relevant to this discussion because of all the pessimism around structured editors. So if you listen to my conversation with Lloyd Tab, you'll remember that part of the reason he's so negative on structural editors is because he tried to build something like one in the 80s. He spent like years of his life on it and failed and text won. And it, and it was just like, I think it was really disheartening for him, um, which for me was, was shocking because 
for like a long time, he and I had gone back and forth on the, the pros and cons about these things, but I never thought to ask about why he was so negative on them. And we really got to it in that interview. And I think that that's a common thing. If you, if you talk to people about structured editors, oftentimes they'll be really, really negative on them. But if you dig deeper, you'll see that it was because at one point they were super optimistic about them and they spent a lot of time trying to make them work and, and then they failed. However, despite all that, I think uh, I'm still optimistic about them. And, and I think there's a lot of promising work here, Luna, Lambdu, Isomorph, uh, et cetera. Um, and I, I reviewed uh, Nico uh, Audio's micro editor. Uh, he's the one who emailed me and, and kind of inspired me to, to write, write this write up up and I reviewed his thing. He has some really clever and, and, and um, interesting ideas here and I'm, I'm excited to continue to talk with him and follow his progress. Um, I also reviewed Vil Vannon's Foolproof HTML. He actually tweeted uh, about the fact that I um, wrote about it, which was super exciting for me. Um, I really love Foolproof HTML. Um, it's in a, in a similar vein to Legible Mathematics by Glenn, which I spoke about earlier in this podcast. And potentially I might do something in that vein at some point because uh, it, it has to do with the expression editor idea that I was just talking about. Um, then I went on, I, I created, I started a, um, a list for structured editors uh, on a GitHub issue and um, Yair, I, I hope that's how I pronounce his name, from Lambda saw that GitHub issue and commented that he already started a list of editors on Reddit and his list is way, way better than mine. So I should probably just close my issue and just link to his because his is great. And um, then at the end of this discussion, I decided that, or like I, I kind of explained why I'm thinking that it's not the highest priority thing that I could be working on right now. Um, I, I use the argument that I've, that I've referenced before that Paul Cesano of Unison came up with. Um, it's basically, would you rather a brain to text interface to uh, x86 assembly or a Vim editor interface to Haskell. And most people would choose Haskell because that's the real leverage here, the, the, the better abstractions. And so a structured editor is basically that. It's just a, it's a better interface to the languages that already exist today, but it's not that much better. It's, it's really the same level of abstraction. It just precludes you from making syntax errors, but then all the other errors that you can make are still there. So for someone like me, programming in JavaScript, I don't make syntax errors anymore. Like I, I've, I've spent my thousand hours. Like it doesn't happen, or it doesn't happen often, and I, I can solve them easily. Uh, at this point, I have a, a parser in my brain. Like I understand how to parse JavaScript, um, but I still have all sorts of problems making websites with JavaScript. So even if someone builds the best um, structured editor for JavaScript, it doesn't come close to solving these problems. We, we have to think bigger than just structured editors. I will caveat that with, if someone builds like the right structured editor library language combo, it could allow us to, it could be the building block to, to more innovation. Um, I think like, like Luna and, and Lambda and Isomorph, these, they all are custom languages that are built specifically for structured editors. And those are some really exciting projects. But as far as I've seen, though all those projects look basically like Haskell, and while Haskell's great, I still, I've spent hundreds of hours in Haskell, maybe even, yeah, not a thousand, but hundreds of hours in Haskell for sure over the last decade. And I still have so much trouble building things in Haskell. So, so like uh, my, my reluctance to keep working on these things is that I can kind of see 
the future, like even if they were done today, uh, it still wouldn't solve the problems that we have. Um, and then I, I also went ahead and wrote a similar kind of like, here are all my thoughts about this topic right up for stream sheets, my prototype idea, how I came up with the idea, what my goal is, how Alan Kay inspired it, how it's similar to Alan Kay's ideas, what FRP is. And that's about all I got into that idea. And that took like hours just, just to get all that out. It's pretty long. It's like 2,400 words at this point, And it's like not even a quarter of the way done. And so you could check that out on the website. That's it's too much to go, go through here right now. Um, but writing this whole write-up about structured editors and about stream sheets, I, I, the word just flew out of me. And part of the reason is I've been thinking about these ideas and writing about them in various places in my journal. But my journal is a time series store of information. It's organized around time and when I think the ideas, not around the ideas themselves. And I'm realizing now how crazy that is. Like, it is really cool to kind of see my journey and how I come up with ideas. It's amazing. But that's not the point of this project. The point of this project isn't to watch me come up with ideas. It's for me to produce a tool. And so I need to structure my ideas, my thinking around the ideas, around the content, not around when I think of them. And so that was kind of a big breakthrough for me. And I had to ring the death knell for my journal. And I really love my journal. As you can tell, I love thinking out loud. I like thinking as I type. And I'm going to keep doing that but I'm not gonna do it in my journal because uh, I don't want that to be where my thoughts are thought in this time series way. So I'm going to push all the content that would go in my journal, like uh, thinking about the problems, thinking about the solutions, thinking about what I'm gonna work on. Well, everything but what I'm working on now, all the ideas that I'm producing, those will go into appropriate folders and files about those ideas. But okay, but, but what about the, the like more day-to-day -day thinking about what am I going to work on? What am I thinking? Okay, so what I came up with for that, preliminarily, what we're gonna, it, it's been working okay so far. What I've come up with so far is that that's what the commit log in Git is. The commit log in Git, when, you, when I make a change to, to, to various files and I commit them, I could just leave a simple message, I added a file or whatever. But if I have more information about what I'm thinking, what I'm nervous about, uh, just thinking through writing like I do, if I have that kind of energy and, and thoughts, I'll put them in a really long commit message. And I, I was able to hook up my preferred editor to the commit log thing. So now whenever I commit things, it goes to, um, it goes to my, my preferred editor and I can, I can kind of write out the whole thoughts like I normally would and I write them in markdown. So there's nowhere yet that automatically turns a commit log and renders it to markdown. But I'm gonna have to build that. And that's going to be part of the website. So if you go to, so in the future, if you go to futureofcoding.org slash log, you'll have every commit message and link to the specific files that were changed. Um, and then if I provide a longer message, it'll render in markdown. So that's, that's a new thing. And then if I want to just think about what I'm working on without adding to any specific file, just make a journal entry about what's going on, I can um, commit to Git without changing any files. That, that's a, a thing Git allows you to do. I could always just add an, add a, new line to a file or something if I wanted to, but I think they allow you to, to push empty commit messages as well. So this got me thinking about a real problem I have, which is if I want to, let's say, delete the journal on my website right now, because I, I do want to fully depreciate it because I'm not going to put content there, what happens to the hundreds of links I've made to various anchor tags within my journal? Like, I don't want to break all those links 
That, that would be crazy. And, and I, I really face this problem firsthand because I go, I, I go back and read Alan Kay and Brett Victor's journals and, 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 um, and also, I'm forgetting, other people's journals from, from decades ago and, and many of their links are broken and, and it's really sad and it's hard for me to do research. So I would really hate for that to happen. And that's just, that's just unacceptable. So one way to solve this problem uh, the obvious way is every time I want to change a file, like journal, for example, I could leave the old version there and just put a big header at the top saying, this has been depreciated, blah, 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 blah. Um, which is fine. It's just a little bit annoying because I want to move files around all the time. And it's just like an extra tax on my thinking because I can't just move things where they need to go. I have to think about the migration plan constantly. So, uh, 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 referencing Juan Bennett again, the way he described the interplanetary file system was that everything is re referenced. So the, when he was describing it, he explained how the web right now is, works by referencing things by their location. He thinks you should reference things by a hash of their content. And so it got me thinking about identity. How do you refer to something? I think there are roughly three ways. You can refer to the content. So if I would refer to myself, that'd be the the specific atoms and where they are in my body right now. Another way to refer to me is by my name. My name is Steve Krause, uh, Steve Miller Krause, you know, uh, or my name is Steve, you know. So names are complicated in and of themselves and some people have the same name as other people. So names are complicated, but, but are also used uh, colloquially and, and they have their uses. Another use, another uh, way we identify people is by location. You, you can list your home address. Uh, where to find you. And so the web currently uses location. And that's fine for certain purposes, but it's, it doesn't work very well when you want to move. Like, for example, if you move somewhere else and it, all your mail is still sent to your old house and you have to send a forwarding address, and it's just annoying and complicated. It'd be, like, neat if that problem was solved. And so I was, I was noodling on this, and, I, and I, it struck me that Git already has hashes. Like, every version of every file that I've ever created in my repository is saved on GitHub somewhere. That's how Git works. So in theory, this should be possible. Shouldn't I be able to link to content and have it never go away? Uh, so I, what I came up with is if you link to something by a, con a hash, it's, current it's the current content that's great, but what happens if that content is updated and, and you want to notify the person that, hey, you know, you're viewing an older version of this document, like, click here to view the updated version. So I thought about it. I said, you know, that, that's fine. I think if, when I, if I link or if someone else links to my website, they're linking to the content at that point in time. Chances are that's what they're linking to. And chances are the content hasn't changed. Um, so we should show them the version of the content that was linked to when it was linked to when the link was made, not whatever happens to be there right now. But also notify the user that, you know, there's an updated version of this page. And also, let's say the page was deleted. We could show them the version that was linked to, and I'll say, you know what, just so you know, this page has been deleted, but you're viewing the, the historical archive version. So that's all fine. But what I have to do now is whenever someone comes to my website, if there's no commit hash already in the URL, I have to go ahead and uh, pull from Git the current commit hash and put that in the URL bar. So if they go ahead and copy that link and paste it anywhere else, uh, that commit hash will just be there automatically. Implicitly, they don't even have to think about it. It's just stored in the query params of the URL. 
And yeah, that's basically how the system works. Um, I, just, I, I decided that this could be its own project that other people might find valuable. Uh, right now I'm calling it Unbreakable Links. Very, very clever name, I know. Uh, and you can check it out, github.com slash stevecraft slash unbreakable links. I've just started the project. I kind of listed it out, all the things that need to happen in order for it to be done. And I don't want to spend too much time on it, although I really want to because it sounds like a fun project. Um, but I'm resisting, and I just built, built out the basic structure of it. It doesn't work. It barely has any content. You'll see if you go on there right now. Um, but if you happen to have some free time and want to help out, you know, go help out. It's in a, it's in a good place for someone else to, to work on it. So I would appreciate the help. And if not, I'll get to it myself shortly because it's, as I now reorganize my thinking around ideas as opposed to time, I'm going to need this, this system so I can move quickly and change things. Move fast and break things, as they say at the good old Fake book. All right, um, okay, a few more things. I had an amazing call with Andre Stoltz this morning. We talked for 90 minutes and it was luxurious and amazing. I love that guy. And it was really fun to get to have so much time to talk with him. And, and I, I engaged him in a, like a high level conversation about my master plan, my strategizing, what I should be thinking about. We, we, we talked a little bit about CycleJS specifically. He helped me. Uh, get things up and running on Cloud9. And it was very simple. We just cloned the repo and, and started things running. So my technical, the technical conversation was kept to a minimum. It was mostly high-level strategizing, how to solve problems, how mathematicians think about problems. Um, the word he used was really stay with the problem. Uh, and the word that stuck in my brain, I don't know if he used it, was marinate, marinate in the problem, really explore the problem. So, so that was really useful for me to hear about. He, he also got to... Um, had a chance to tell me about his Scuttlebutt project, which is really exciting. Um, I, to, like, I, it's kind of silly, but I, I draw a parallel between Juan Bennett and Andre Stoltz in that they're both brilliant people whose side projects I've been really, really interested in and whose main project I haven't been that interested in. Um, and so the last time I, this happened to me, I didn't pay attention to the, the main project of this genius person that I was talking to. And so I didn't make that mistake this time. So, I asked, so we talked about Scuttlebutt, and it's really cool. It's basically a Facebook competitor built on the decentralized web. And ha, yeah, it has far-reaching implications, and it's exciting. It's like a really cool project, and it, and it has like a small, devoted community. Andre's working on it for free. So I would bet on Andre, and I'd bet on Scuttlebutt. So if you, if you haven't heard about that, you could check it out. Um, some other interesting notes. I, all the notes about Andre are on the website, but some, uh, he, he, had, he encouraged me to think about designing a programming language for the future. But given that this is a 10-year project, I'm, I'm designing for the future, why not think about what technologies that don't exist today might exist in the future? For example, machine learning and AI. Uh, and and we, we talked about that a little bit. Um, I, I don't think I'm going to... I don't think I'm going to go and learn about AI too much more than I already know right now, but, but it, it, he was pushing me in the right direction. And as I mentioned uh, earlier in this podcast, he really pushed me to think about building a subcomponent for this project, like an expression editor, something like that. Um, and so I, so I really want to think more clearly and more thoroughly about expression editors. Uh, and I'm sure I will get some feedback on that idea in just like an hour when I talk to Glenn about his legible, mathemat legible mathematics project. 
Okay, so my plan for the next two weeks is mostly, like the number one priority is to continue master planning, writing and strategizing, getting feedback on my writing and strategizing from my friends and mentors. Uh, number two, I'm going to start writing more explicitly about the problems that I'm thinking about. I think uh, this is directly because of Andre's advice. So as opposed to just writing about the solutions like stream sheets or uh, reactive woof or reactive scratch, I'm going to think about the problem. So there's the view update problem that I identify in, um, in stream sheets. So, so I should just you know, talk about that problem outside of the context of stream sheets. It's its own problem. And there's um, the problem of, of iterating on graphical languages is hard. It, it's graphical languages are harder to iterate on than text is. So like that's its own problem. That's kind of a meta problem, really. That, that would kind of speed up the whole space like Blockly did. Um, error messages. Error messages are really hard and tricky. And, and if you compile to a language that has error messages, like how do you handle those messages? Uh, for example, like when I program in JavaScript, um, I don't get like messages from like an assembly. I just get JavaScript error messages. So how do you, if you're going to compile to another language or interpret, if you're going to build an interpreter, how do you handle all of the error messages of like the, the language one level of abstraction below you? Um, and then another problem that I mentioned in stream sheets is that when you're trying to understand a project, uh, piecing it together from looking through the files and folders on GitHub is so terrible. And so uh, Cycle.js and the data flow diagram stuff really solves this problem well. But anyways, write about my problems and really marinate on the problems. That's a really important thing to do. And then I also want to really think about my solutions and really articulate them. Each one will have its own page on the website. Um, or if, if I don't make the page, them, them have pages on the website because I'm, I haven't finished unbreakable links yet, I will uh, create GitHub issues for them and, and collect all my thoughts about them on, these, on, the, on the GitHub issues. Um, so, so these ideas are stream sheets and functional reactive woof. I, I've already started GitHub issues for those, but I need to start GitHub issues for functional reactive scratch and for uh, building Elm with a Blockly interface and building a cycle Blockly interface and building an expression editor. And then um, my, my lowest priority thing, but probably the most urgent thing I have to do uh, is build unbreakable links so that I can go ahead and move things on the website without worry about links breaking. So yeah, that was a lot. I apologize for how fast I, I spoke this episode. I had a lot to get out. I had a lot of energy and I didn't have a lot of time. So I said it as fast as I could. I once read that uh, mumbling is actually not a bad thing. It's a, a way that humans compress speech to speed things up. Uh, I read this in high school when my parents were complaining that I was mumbling too much. And so I apologize to you if I mumbled too much. Um, but on the bright side, it did compress my speech and made things a little bit faster for me on the recording side. Um, so that is that. I will talk to you all uh, next week with an interview and the week after that with another recap. Bye.